you're listening to one of the Wellness Couch podcasts, obviously you're interested in health and nutrition and probably want to know more. My good friend Sunil Mera from Up For A Chat and the Functional Nutritional Academy presents to you the Intro to Nutrition course. This 10-week introductory program is the perfect kickstarter to help you gain knowledge and get empowered and develop a healthy relationship with food. To find out more, to get access to one of the world's leader in nutrition, go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash nutrition. That's thewellnesscouch.com forward slash nutrition. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by the secretive dietitian Cassie. I've just been informed that no one knows her last name, which is really cool. <laughs> so uh, she has done. Uh, she is a dietitian, obviously, but when she was taking all of her classes to become a dietitian, she felt like she was a bit of a fraud. She was trying to follow all the dieting rules and finding it really hard. She kept doing sugar detoxes, but she kept craving food. She kept putting on weight, and she discovered the truth was that she was the sugar addict. Um, and the kicker was that she was eating exactly what she was told she should be eating at dietitian school. Um, she had a bit of a breakthrough when her father actually got quite sick, had major heart surgery, and he spoke to his dietitian at the hospital. They said, look, just keep doing exactly what you've been doing. That's great. And she thought, that just doesn't seem right. There must be more to it. Started doing some research, and here we have the dietitian, Cassie, we have today. She's made some big changes in her own life. She's helped thousands of people make big changes in their lives. So, Welcome to the show, Dietitian Cassie. Thank you, Dr. Brett. That was a good summary of my story. I appreciate that. <laughs> I tried I try to summarize <laughs> it. It's a, it's a long story. You've done lots of cool stuff. So I tried to get into a short version so that I could let you tell the rest of the story. So tell us a bit about your journey, Cassie. What was it that made you decide to be a dietitian in the first place? Mm, I've just always been interested in nutrition and how the body works. And I was an athlete and in high school, and I knew I wanted to be in the healthcare field. Um, I'm not really sure why. I think I just had I just had an interest in that, and I wasn't really sure what exactly I would do with it. And when I realized um, that you know there's a lot to what what we're putting in our body and the food that we're eating and how it affects our performance, that's really when I started um, just to get interested in it. And then you know I started to see too, and I still see all the time. We all do that. So many people. Feel feel frazzled and defeated and like failures when it comes to their weight and their energy levels. And, you know, just like I was doing, like you said, you know, when I was in dietitian school, um, I was trying everything I could to maintain my weight, to lose weight and nothing seemed to work. And so many people do just that and they believe that there's something wrong with them. So just right off the bat, if anyone is listening, if this sounds like you, I just want you to know, um, I believe there's a flaw, but the flaw has nothing to do with you. The flaw is in the information that we been given. And that was just the problem for me is when I went to dietitian school, I didn't just learn the information that I was taught. I lived it. And like you said, Dr. Brett, I was following all the healthy diet rules. I was eating low fat, low calorie, hardly eating any sugar at all. I didn't even think to question them at the time. Um, After all, they were the same rules I'd been hearing my entire life from other health experts and doctors and dietitians, you know, count your calories, eat low fat, exercise more, try to eat less, you know, the drill. And when I gained, you know, 20 pounds in dietitian school and was just consumed by cravings and thought about food all the time, I just thought there must be something wrong with me. It can't be the system that I'm following. 
So then, you know, during my final year of dietitian school, like you mentioned, my father needed to have immediate, unexpected, major heart surgery. And I was just floored. I mean, he'd been the picture of health, or so I thought. He was following all the same recommendations that I'd been learning and following. And he was even a runner. In fact, he was actually running a race the day he experienced the chest tightness. And I'll never forget sitting in the hospital room with my father after the surgery when the dietitian came in. And this was my final year of dietitian school. And I didn't, I didn't mention that I was about to graduate dietitian school. I just wanted to hear what this expert had to say, because clearly the things my father had been doing, the same things I was learning in school, hadn't helped at all. So I thought, gosh, you know, she's probably going to tell us something different. But she gave him the same spiel, you know, try to try to maintain a low fat, low calorie diet, never look at a stick of butter again, just, you know, eat margarine, eat oatmeal, don't drink, don't smoke. And I said, well, he's already doing all of that. And all she could say was, okay, well, keep doing it. <laughs> and that's just when I got so angry. I remember sitting there thinking, but this is what landed him on, on your operating table in the first place. And then I thought, funny how I also followed all those things. And now I'm 20 pounds heavier than when I started. And that's really why, you know, when and why I became determined to figure it out on my own. I really had to become my own advocate. So I could be my dad's advocate too. And that's when I dug into the research and the studies that were outside of my assigned coursework. And to my surprise, I learned that, gosh, I actually had to do the opposite of what I was learning in school. So that's when I quit the low, low fat, low calorie dieting. And amazingly, you know, this sugar addiction that I had went away, the more fat that I ate, and I stopped being consumed with thoughts of food and no more days without energy. My brain had never felt so clear and powerful. And I felt so in control when for years, I, I was trying to stick to all these diets and just felt totally un, out of control. So that's why I've made it my personal mission to share the truth and the power of real food because it's had such an impact, not just on me personally, but we see thousands of clients um, who come to us with the same feeling of feeling like they're a prisoner in their own body and frazzled and defeated and like failures. And instead of losing weight, they've just lost self-worth and self-confidence with all of the different diets they've been on in that vicious cycle. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the worst things about it, isn't it? There's so many people out there who've been told uh, that they need to follow this sort of approach and whether they're trying mm -hmm. to lose weight or whether they're trying to get their health back on track and it just hasn't been working. Um, and unfortunately, some of the people who are involved in this system are so convinced that that is the right way to go that, that even when mm -hmm. they face the fact that it's absolutely not working, their answer to that is it must be the person sitting in front of them. It can't be the approach. Mm -hmm. And so, so often these people do end up with such low self-esteem, such low confidence that they can actually make a difference, that they can actually turn things around because they've been told that, well, this is what you need to do and it hasn't worked for them. And then they're just really not sure where to go next. So, where did you start to look when you started to look for other solutions? You know, I, I don't even remember if it was a book or a research article. I honestly wish I could remember what exactly I'd come across. But I think that all the dots started to connect for me, too, when I realized that the whole dietitian industry is actually funded by the food industry. So at least in America, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, I mean, they're funded by primarily McDonald's and Coca-Cola. And I thought, how convenient. I was like, this mm. whole system is backwards. And then, you know, that's when I was like, there's got to be more to this. And really, to me, it never made sense that I remember in school, we had a test and we had to answer the question. It was like, what what's healthier out of the following options? And avocado was on there and 100 calorie pack of I don't know if it was crackers or cookies or something like that was on there. And that was actually the answer. Like, oh, believe man. it or not, 
And I knew it and I knew it and I wanted to put avocado so bad, but I, I put the other answer because I wanted to ace the test. But here's the thing is it never made sense to me. Like when they were teaching us in school that, you know, avocados have like three times the amount of calories as these, you know, 75 calorie pack of cookies. So the cookies are healthier, but I would always eat the entire box, like all six of these little bags yeah. of cookies. Yeah, Nobody like who eats just- the recommended serving size, right? <laughs> exactly. But I think when I look back, it never made sense to me. You know, it, it, it never, it just never made sense to me. And I, growing up, you know, my dad always said I was a natural leader leading my younger brothers and the kids at school who are having trouble with certain concepts and their homework. I loved helping them figure it out and connect the dots and put all the pieces together. So when I got to dietitian school, that's really when these two worlds came full circle to me, for me, like they all, they came together, my desire to help others and be a detective and help people with concepts that didn't make sense. Cause there were a lot of concepts in dietitian school that weren't making sense to me. And then, you know, on top of that, I had this personal, personal mission, you know, with, with my dad's heart surgery and trying to make sure he was healthy. So I think I just felt like my little girl self again, back in the classroom, connecting the dots and putting the pieces together. And that's really like just digging into all these different pieces. And I realized that, you know, it doesn't make sense that if we want to feel our best and have the most energy and, and even lose weight, like, why would we take away the energy that we're giving our bodies? Because that's exactly what we're doing with calorie counting. And this is how I explain it to our clients is that when you're on a quest to boost your metabolism and have energy, and if you want to lose weight, if that's a goal of yours, you want to boost your metabolism, like counting calories and restricting calories is the last thing you want to be doing. And I remember in school, I would think about this because we were learning all the different equations to figure out how many calories someone needed. And, and, and then we'd look at the foods and count up exactly how many calories they could get from different. And of course, we had to cut out fat because fat is the highest in calories out of the three macronutrients, protein, fat and carbs. Um, so that would be the first thing that we'd cut. So people would be mostly eating carbs. And now I realize that's what was fueling my sugar addiction because all carbohydrates turn to sugar in our body. So I was basically eating sugar all day long when I look at it that way. And I also realized that calories, what they are, they're energy that fuel our bodies and help them run, just like gasoline fuels our cars. So when you think about it, you wouldn't expect your car to run better if you take away the gas. So why would we expect our body to work better when we deprive it of calories? It just doesn't make any sense. And I remember thinking about that, like when you deprive your body of the energy it needs, it fights back and it actually conserves energy by slowing down your metabolism. So no wonder we feel irritable and hungry and have low energy levels and cravings when we're dieting. And it just makes so much sense, Cassie, and and it kind of makes you wonder when you do see so many people who've been down, I guess, what is the conventional approach right now and that it's not working for them and as a society, we're not getting smaller, we're not getting healthier, you know, why is it that we don't see that it's not working? <laughs> like, what's the what's the disconnect here between, I guess, particularly dietitians, like not wanting to pick on dietitians <laughs> because there are some great ones like yourself out there, but, but as a whole, it seems there's a real disconnect between them and what the current research is saying and what's actually working for people. What's the What's the gap? Isn't that crazy? I don't know. I don't know what the gap is. I mean, part of me, with all due respect to all of my colleagues who are dietitians, there's so many great dietitians out there. Um... We're all a little bit stubborn. <laughs> I think a lot of dietitians are, I don't know why, but it seems like we're all kind of type A and, and stubborn people. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But I also think that unbrainwashing ourselves, like just the process of like unlearning everything that we've been taught for so long is 
a really challenging process and it takes a long time. And when we, you know, to take a look at like your entire education and say, I've been not only taught the wrong thing for years, but I was teaching people the wrong thing. Like I feel so guilty when I look back to my first, you know, my first few patients at the hospital that I was working at. I mean, I had, I had to teach them to count calories and not eat fat and to deprive their bodies. And even just thinking back to that, I just, I feel, I feel awful about it because I know that it was wrong. So I don't know. I don't know if it has something to do with like integrity and not wanting to be wrong or if it's just that we've been taught this for so long it just takes so long to undo and unbrainwash yeah it's it's so ingrained in our society isn't it and i mean the the Uh one that the one that keeps just striking me at the moment is just the way we deal with diabetics and and the Mm -hmm. advice that we give to diabetics i mean it just seems crazy and and when you think when you understand the physiology of the body and how the body works the the approaches we take to that to type 2 diabetics particularly just it just doesn't make sense and and i just don't quite get it what is why why do they take the approach they currently take to to diabetics cassie and what's what's the disconnect there because i just don't get it I don't get it either. I think I don't understand it at all. I mean, when you think about it, you know, like when you eat a carbohydrate, regardless of the source, it turns to sugar the moment it hits your bloodstream. So your blood sugar levels spike, it's alarming to your body. So it triggers your pancreas to quickly secrete insulin. And, you know, people with diabetes especially know that insulin's job is to unlock the door to your cells and allow that sugar, that glucose to get into your cell and out of your bloodstream, which brings your blood sugar levels back down. And, you know, the the thing is that with diabetes, it's never really made sense to me that, you know, we for for years what's been recommended for um, for diabetes is consuming enough carbohydrates, like like consuming forty five to sixty grams of carbohydrates at every meal to control your blood sugars, and th- that that just really doesn't make any sense. Consuming less of what causes your blood sugar levels to spike, carbs, and balancing them out with more healthy fat and protein is what really actually makes sense. So it's never really made sense to me that that's really what you know for. For so long, that's been the gold standard is carbohydrate counting, which is yeah. essentially ensuring the people with diabetes are getting enough carbohydrates. And then fat is really, really frowned upon for people with diabetes. And the interesting thing about that is that, you know, fat is actually probably the best thing for anyone with diabetes or anyone who doesn't want to get diabetes. I would say eat more fat. Because it helps, it's the best buffer for carbohydrates and it lowers your insulin requirement. It slows the absorption of those carbohydrates into your bloodstream and promotes blood sugar stabilization. So really, I mean, fat doesn't really stimulate an insulin release at all when compared to carbohydrates. So that whole thing, I'm so glad that you brought that up because, I mean, my mind, I remember even dietitian school, I thought about this and thought it doesn't really make sense. But at that time, until what happened with my, with my father, even with me gaining weight, not feeling good at all, following, you know, what I was learning in dietitian school, I still didn't question it that much. Is still learning. So I don't know, just going back to what you were saying about, you know, how does how does this happen with dietitians still teaching all of this wrong information? I think that we just kind of learn what we're being taught. And for years, I mean, even with type two diabetes, it's a great example. It doesn't make any sense that we're promoting more carbohydrates for people that have blood sugar issues, but that's still what's being taught to this day. 
It's it's amazing. It blows me away. Um, let's talk about sugar addiction because you mentioned that a couple of times. You know, mm. I think people hear sugar addiction and they kind of think, oh, that's a bit over the top. Like, you know, sugar's not that bad. Um, you know, it can't have that big an effect. It can't be that addictive. It's just a food. It's not like a drug. So, tell mm-hmm. us a bit about sugar addiction and, and how much that affected you and how much that affects other people. So with sugar addiction, I would I would definitely argue, and I, I totally hear what you're saying. I mean, we hear that a lot. Um, that you know, it, it's it's not a drug. It can't be a real thing. What's so bad about sugar anyway? And the thing about sugar is, it actually triggers the same. Um, the, it, it, it's it's just like cocaine in your brain. It triggers that same reward center and. You know, calling your compulsion to consume sugar an addiction does sound a little bit dramatic, but addiction is defined as the continued use of a mood altering substance or behavior despite adverse dependency consequences. So when you're addicted to something, you keep exposing yourself to it, even when you know it's harming your health. And that's why people that respond to a sugar craving by having a cookie or 10 find themselves experiencing a blood sugar spike because their blood sugars go up after all that sugar followed by a crash. And your brain just doesn't know what to make of these spikes and crashes. But what it knows, because your brain is so smart, it knows that low blood sugar levels are a problem. So it sets off its emergency alarm system and tells you to eat more sugar. So even though you feel kind of guilty and shameful for having more sugar, you do that and you have another cookie and another and it sets, sets you up for this addictive cycle. And it's it's these repeated cycles of low blood sugar levels, this spike and this crash that's basically programming your brain to want more and more. And with sugar, you can build up a tolerance just like drug users do. I mean, tolerance, basically what it is, it's the need for more of the same substance um, to get the same effect or when the same amount of substance produces less of an effect with continued use. And the problem with sugar, you know, I think what's so, well, first of all, I think what's so tricky about sugar is that it's so socially acceptable, right? I mean, social events, they oftentimes revolve around sugar, birthdays, anniversaries, work outings, parties, coffee, dates. I mean, unless you're like me and you order your coffee with butter or heavy whipping cream, um, you know, usually there's a lot of sugar revolving around these different um, events. And the thing about sugar that's so I think the big problem with sugar is it's pretty safe to say that generally when we think about sugar, we don't think it, it is something that causes pain or suffering um, or like there's anything wrong with it. Maybe as kids, we were taught that having too much sugar would rot our teeth. But mm. what I like to think about with sugar, and this is what we tell our clients, is think of it as like little shards of glass that are cutting up your insides and it inflames your body even if you can't feel it. And not only can it cause, you know, weight gain and stop weight loss because of this inflammation, um, but inflammation is really the root of, I mean, you've, you see it, Dr. Brett, probably all, probably all problems. I mean, all health issues. It's the culprit behind migraine headaches, feeling bloated, not getting enough sleep, not to mention heart disease and potentially cancer and so, so many problems associated with inflammation and sugar causes that inflammation. So not only is it a problem in the short term, in the interim, because we feel guilty and like out of control and our clients explain it like they feel like they're um, they feel like they're not themselves. They feel like they're li- living in somebody else's body. Like they'll say, I, 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 I went through the drive through and I didn't feel like it was me. I felt like somebody else was taking over my entire body and just driving me through the drive through to get that ice cream or that mocha or that muffin. And it literally can take over just like any addiction can. So it's a very, very serious thing. And I think the problem with sugar addiction is that it's so socially acceptable. People just laugh it off. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Like I had a similar experience, I guess, uh, about 
eight or ten years ago, I, I gave up drinking for a period of eight years, and uh, and it's kind of the same. Like the the social pressure around consuming alcohol mm-hmm. and the social pressure around consuming sugar, because it's just considered so normal that that not doing it is considered very you know strange and and odd. And why would you do that? And what's wrong with you? And and all those sort of things. So I definitely get what you're saying about the the social pressure side of it. But let's talk about what we mean when we talk about sugar, because obviously there's lots of different mm-hmm. types of sugars, and we know that there's lots of uh, artificial sugars and processed sugars in our modern diets, um, whether that's, you know, just the, the, the plain sugar in our foods, whether it's like high fructose mm-hmm. corn syrup and those sort of things. But then there's also a lot of natural sugars, so things like fruits and vegetables and, and things like that, So and, and honey and maple syrup. and mm-hmm. So, people get a bit confused about what we mean when we talk about sugars. Are all sugars equal or are, or are some sugars better for us than others? So that's a great question because I did even mention earlier that like all carbohydrates, even vegetable and fruit carbohydrates turn to sugar in your body. But I think and I don't think there's anything wrong with having vegetables and fruits. I'm a huge advocate of getting, you know, real food carbohydrates, even though they turn into sugar in your body. But I think the key is you want to try to pair them with protein and fat when you eat them. So I always tell people to think PFC when they're eating. They want some good quality protein, meat, fish, eggs. They want healthy fat, you know, avocados, um, butter if you're not sensitive to it nuts, seeds, if you're not sensitive to those, um, olive oil, and then of course your carbohydrates. I recommend the real food carbohydrates like veggies and fruits. I think the sugary foods that can be problematic are the processed ones. So not just cookies and crackers and soda pop, but also um, you know things that we've thought of as healthy for so long that have been ingrained, um, pun intended, in our heads for so long, like like grains, like bread, and you know pasta, and even rice. Um, I think for a lot of people, gluten free versions of these can be better, but the problem is they still turn into piles of sugar in our body. So those are the types of um, carbohydrates that I recommend trying to stay away from. And I'm not just talking. I think what's interesting is um, a lot of people say, well, I you know I don't have sugar cravings, but I crave potato chips, and I crave bread. And the thing is, those are still sugar cravings. Even though those aren't the typical sugary foods we think of, potato chips and bread and pasta and rice turn into a lot of sugar in our body. So if you're having, you know, if you think those are salt cravings, they're probably actually still sugar cravings. And those are the ones we want to stay away from because those have the greatest effect on our blood sugars. And they turn into so much, so many more of those little shards of glass that I was talking about that damage our insides. So, Cassie, I know for a lot of dietitians in Australia and New Zealand who talk about the sort of stuff that you talk about and, and practice in the way that you practice, um, mm-hmm. it can be challenging for them in the current regulatory environment um, in terms of, you know, they get a lot of pressure from um, their associations, they get a lot of pressure from medical fraternities, they get a lot of pressure from skeptic groups because they're doing stuff that's outside of the norm, outside of what most people and most dietitians are recommending. Do you find that the case in America and, and if so, how do you deal with those challenges? Absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. Every single day. I mean, that's definitely uh, probably the hardest part about this job. But for me, it's coming from this place of integrity. I couldn't teach what I know isn't true. And I think that's why the moment that I realized that everything that I've been being taught, um, almost everything was was false and was making me sicker and making my dad sicker. And then I look at the thousands, millions, you know, of people that are following the same flawed information, and they feel like failures themselves. And it's just making them sicker and fatter and 
knowing all of that, I mean, I couldn't do anything differently. I, I, I couldn't teach anything differently. And then here's the thing too, Dr. Brett, like you said earlier, it's all research-based. Everything mm. that I teach is research-based. There are research studies to support what I'm teaching. So, And we're getting more and more and more of that. I mean, 10 years ago when I started teaching these things, it was a lot harder. But even with dietitians, um, there are so many more dietitians who consider themselves real food dietitians that are more in line with the paleo and primal concepts and that are getting further away from um, the standards that we're taught, the conventional standards that we're taught that don't work in school that are, we're basically taught from dusty old textbooks. So mm-hmm. it's definitely challenging, but I think it just comes down to um, leading a life of integrity. And, you know, every day, I mean, our, our coaching program with clients, we have a 100% success rate for every client that goes through our program. And that's not because of, you know, luck or magic. It's because we actually have a specific specific process that we put them through that identifies their missing puzzle pieces that have been standing in the way of um, blocking their weight loss and energy levels. And like I see, I, I think I, because I see it work and I see the results, not just in my own life and my dad's life, but in the thousands of our clients as well, that's what keeps me going every day. And, and that's what helps me stay, stay strong when I'm, when I'm faced with um, the skeptics. Nice work, Cassie. Well, let's talk about some of those blocks that you're speaking about with your clients. Mm-hmm. What what are mm-hmm. the common misconceptions that people have around their diet? And I guess we probably touched on some of them already, but what yeah. are the common misconceptions people have that they're actually holding them back from getting the results they're looking for? I, I mean, I think the biggest thing, and I'll elaborate on this, is that we've been told that um, it's our fault for being fat and that we're eating too many calories or not burning enough. And that's flat out not true. So what we need to do is we need to see the full picture of health and metabolism. Um, it's not as simple as counting calories or exercising more. We've spent decades following low calorie, low fat diets and busting our butts at the gym and feeling like failures. And after all this, we're still not losing weight. So um, what we go through, and actually I outline. I outline these in my um, number one best-selling book. It's called "Why Am I Still Fat?" And uh, let me just the, let me clarify why I chose that title. That's because the most frustrated and emotionally charged question we get from our clients is a heartbreaking, "Why am I still fat?" Because they've tried everything to lose weight, and after all the diets, pills, and potions, they ask this question. So this is what we do with our clients. And I wrote my book based off of these experiences too. Is we go through the hidden, never talked about keys um, to metabolism and weight loss. Um, and you know, that full picture includes a lot of these overlooked factors like hormonal imbalance, thyroid function, gut health, sleep, stress, food sensitivities, alcohol. Um, and of course we do talk about food, you know, I'm, I'm a dietitian and we absolutely look at food. I, I do believe that 90% of probably 90 to hundred percent of health issues have to do with what we're putting into our body. But the thing is, there's a lot more to it as well. So we really dig into like all these missing pieces of the puzzle and help people put these together. And what about metabolism, Cassie? It's, it seems like mm-hmm. there's a topic that people seem to be a bit confused about and, and people aren't quite sure whether, you know, maybe maybe they just have a slow metabolism. Maybe their metabolism just isn't very good. So, and maybe that's the reason why they're not losing weight. So, when it comes to metabolism, how much of it is to do with the individual person and perhaps their genetic makeup and those sort of things and how much of it is actually to do with more controllable factors in terms of their lifestyle? I'm glad that you asked that question because when I'm at speaking events and I ask people, you know, what they think impacts their metabolism, everyone yells age. (laughs) That's like the first thing that we think of. And Mm. absolutely, age affects metabolism. But really, there's like a huge list of things that impact your metabolism that we can actually control. So, um, you know, there are things that we can do like eating real food and balancing our blood sugar levels and staying away from artificial sweeteners and avoiding trans fat. 
fats, which show up as hydrogenated um, oils or partially hydrogenated oils, getting plenty of sleep, good quality sleep, doing the right types of exercising, um, taking, you know, quality supplements, managing our stress, um, making sure you're eating plenty of healthy fat because healthy fat is really healing to the body. You know, these are things that, that we can do. And I think, you know, some people too, I should probably also clarify, like, what is your metabolism? Sometimes it's like, that's a big word. What does that even mean? So your metabolism is how efficiently your body is able to convert the things that you eat and drink into energy. So basically how much body fat you store and how much you're able to burn is a function of your metabolism. And when you keep your metabolism revved up, it gives you the right kind of energy to not just have energy levels throughout the day, but to lose weight too, if that's a goal. And so this is why when we look at our um, weight loss clients or clients who really want to lose weight and they've been on all these diets, we see that the the thing that we have to do that we have to focus on is revving up their metabolism because when you're on diets, your metabolism slows down. It's like that car analogy I was talking about earlier. When, when you don't give your body what it needs, when you're restricted of calories and fat, it actually slows down because it's trying to conserve energy because it doesn't trust you and it doesn't know if you're going to give it what it needs because you haven't. So what it does is that anytime you actually eat, which you will at some point or you'll die, but when you actually eat, your body holds on to what you're giving it and your metabolism is just in the tank. So we have to actually, the first step to revving up our metabolism is to stop counting calories mm. and to realize that calories actually fuel your metabolism. But but the trick is you have to make sure the calories you're bringing in, but not counting, just bringing in, are from the right types of food. So that's where that PFC concept that I mentioned earlier, that's where that comes into play. That PFC is that is that term that I coined referring to eating a combination of the three macronutrients. So those proteins, fats, and carbohydrates all together. And that keeps your blood sugar levels balanced and inflammation at bay, which also boosts your metabolism. And, you know, you say PFC, Cassie, and is that the order that you think they should be prioritized in? Do you, like, are you saying that protein is the most important, you should have most of that and then fat and then carbohydrate? Like, what sort of ratios do you recommend for those? No, actually, I don't. I think that it's just a balance of all three. Um, I don't like to count anything, you know, even grams or morsels or anything like that. But when I think about the amounts of PFC, because definitely that's a good question. Um, For protein, I usually recommend sticking to the circumference and thickness of the palm of your hand. So for most people that ends up being at least a few ounces of protein, usually closer to five or six ounces of protein at all of their meals. And then for fat, I recommend a couple tablespoons as a starting point. And that's just a starting point. So we have clients that are eating, you know, several tablespoons of fat at their meals. But for a lot of people, um, especially people who have been kind of following the low fat way of eating, it can be a little challenging to add in fat right away. So I recommend starting with a couple tablespoons of either butter or olive oil, or maybe it's olives or nuts or seeds or coconut oil. And then for carbohydrates, um, usually, you know, a half a cup or so is a good starting point when it comes to the starchy carbohydrates, like sweet potatoes, um, corn, squash, um, peas, or fruit. And then the non-starchy carbohydrates are like your salad vegetables, like spinach, cucumber, broccoli, cauliflower. And those are pretty much unlimited because they hardly have any impact on your blood sugar levels. So that's kind of what the plate looks like when it comes to PFC balanced eating. I don't think that really any, the P, F, or the C are more important than the other ones. It's The key is to support your metabolism and keep your blood sugar levels balanced. You want to eat all three together. 
that sounds great, Cassie. You know, in Australia we have uh, well, we used to have the food pyramid. Um, mm. Now we've got the food plate. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but but your food plate sounds better than their food plate. So I think that sounds <laughs> great. And and it actually well, reminds me a lot of a f- good friend of mine, Damien Christoph, who's a chiropractor and a naturopath and nutritionist. <laughs> he and he's my co-host on the Wellness Guys, and he has something called the Palm Method. Um, and you can Google that, and it's on YouTube, and you can see his little version of it. And it sounds very similar to the sort of ratios you're recommending. So it's cool that oh, uh, these experts are kind of coming together and agreeing on this kind of stuff. So, Oh, good. I love that. Cassie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're an absolute wealth of information. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Um, people are obviously going to want to find out more about you. Um, and so they can find you at your website, which is dietitiancassie.com. And that's D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N. Cassie. You got it. C-A-S-S-I-E dot com. Um, and same on uh, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, Dietitian Cassie. And obviously your book, which people are going to definitely want to get hold of. I might have to get a copy of that for my lending library, I reckon, which is Why Am I Still Fat? The Hidden Keys to Unlocking That Stubborn Weight Loss. Um, so make sure you head to all the social medias. Check out Cassie's website because there's lots and lots more great information there. Um, once again, thank you so much for coming on board today, Cassie. Thank you so much. This was such a blast. I appreciate the work that you're doing as well. And thanks for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. Um, So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com. And let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.